One of the advantages of having a theological education is that each professor that you have thinks that you have no other class but theirs. And so they assign you somewhere around 100 to 200 pages to read a week. Uh, And so you times that by about five professors and somehow you're reading 1,000 pages a week. Reading is what you're doing. But it exposes you to a tremendous amount of the Christian world. You get to read all kinds of different authors and Christians who came before us. And one of the things that I've felt so bad about church ministry is that we don't often highlight those saints who come before us. And I'm not talking about saints in the sense of the Catholic Church, although the, the Christian we're talking about today is actually one of those saints as well. Uh, I'm talking about those who have lived a Christian life, who have loved, loved Jesus and served Jesus, and their example has been left and passed down through history for us to study and to know about. And so twice a year, it's become my habit to preach a sermon focusing on the life of one of these saints from history, one of these Christians from history. And around 4th of July weekend, I'm focusing on kind of American Christians, people who lived in America and had an impact on Christianity here and in the rest of the world. And then um, on Reformation Sunday, Christians from the rest of the world. So this Sunday, just as the reformers would want it, we were, we're going to talk about a Catholic nun. They're probably rolling around in their graves just now as a Presbyterian minister introduces the topic of Mother Teresa into a Reformation Sunday service. But our our theme for this entire series, as we do it twice a year, is from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And as I think about Christians from recent history in the last century, uh, I think that probably there's no other Christian who's more recognized and more well-known by even non-Christians all over the world as Mother Teresa. And so this Sunday, I wanted to talk a little bit about her. Now, as I usually give a caveat, I've read hundreds of pages on her uh, in the last few weeks in preparation for this, and I'm now going to condense it down into like uh, 1,200 words or something like that. So go read on your own. I'm just trying to introduce you a little bit into the life of these people so that you get an appetite to go and learn about them on your own. Maybe someday I'll accompany this kind of a series with a, like a two-hour lecture in Mitchell Hall um, afterwards. How many of you guys would like that? Oh, okay. Well, that's fair enough, I suppose. Um, So fairly fairly little is known about the early life of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa actually herself believed so much in the humility of her life of service to Christ that she rarely talked about her own personal history. She often related this to the life of Jesus himself who lived for 30 years doing the common work of a craftsman before his public ministry began. So I'm going to focus a little bit on what we know, a little bit more on what we know about her early life, because it was some of the stuff I didn't know about her and I thought was interesting, and then gloss a little bit over the stuff that we know about her later life. We do know that she was born on August 26 in 1910 in Skopje, which is modern-day Macedonia, but in those days it was a part of the Ottoman Empire. You're right, when you think Ottoman Empire, you're thinking of an Islamic empire. And so she was born to, um, uh, where am I at? Oh, she was born to Nicola and Drana, I don't even know how to pronounce the name, but I'm going to guess Boashu. 
the youngest of three, she had an older brother and an older sister, they were of Albanian descent and they were part of a 10% minority population of Catholics that lived in Skopje. Her given name was Agnes, not Teresa. Her mother was a very strong religious woman who often said, be only all for God, which became a favorite mantra of, of Teresa as she grew older. Her father was an entrepreneur and a merchant who got involved in politics after they moved into the uh, Macedonian area. In 1919, he traveled to Belgrade in an attempt to broker peace because there were wars happening in, his, in their region and um, different empires were kind of coming in and taking over where he lived. Um, but he traveled to Belgrade in an attempt to broker peace and, and he left in full health but he returned on the brink of death, bleeding internally. And despite the effort of local doctors to try and figure out what was going on, he eventually passed away. And many believed, in whether we know this to be true or not, that he was poisoned by political rivals while he was away trying to broker peace. Her family was very musical. I don't know that many people know that. And she grew up learning all kinds of instruments. Her specific instrument was the mandolin. And she grew up serving her parish with those musical talents. Teresa had a chronic res respiratory illness as a child. And in fact, her parents and her mother specifically did not expect her to live very long. They took annual pilgrimages to the chapel of Madonna of Letnice, or Letnice, and Teresa joined a piety group for young girls in her home congregation that was established by the priest there. Teresa fell in love with the stories of missionaries that she would hear relayed back to her congregation from all over the world. By the age of 12, she was already feeling a call to become a missionary herself, and she had her eyes set on Africa. Over the next six years of her life, she had settled this call in her own mind, except for hearing stories from Calcutta in India, her direction changed and she decided she wanted to go to India. So at the age of 18, she left uh, her home and she joined the Sisters of Loretto in Rothfarnham, Ireland. So here's this little um, Albanian girl who is from Macedonia, who is now going to Ireland to learn English and the other skills that she would need to go to the mission field. One year later, so only one year of training, she arrived in India to continue her training in Darjeeling. And she took up temporary vows as a novitiate and receiving her habit. And I think this is the only picture I could find of her wearing a habit. She wrote much about the shock that she received from seeing the conditions of the poor in India. They were like nothing she had seen before, even though she had worked among the poor in her own town and in Ireland. And she said this, if our people could only see all this, they would stop grumbling about their own misfortunes and offer thanks to God for blessing them with such abundance. She took her first more formal vows in 1931, and she became a teacher in a covenant school on the outskirts of Calcutta, and she served there for 17 years, including being named the headmistress in 1944. During her time serving at the school, her heart became heavy laden with concern for the poor of nearby Calcutta. 
1946, while she traveled by train to Darjeeling, which was a part of an annual retreat that she would go to every single year. Obviously, that's what annual means, Chris. You didn't need to say that. She experienced some sort of mystical encounter on the train with Christ, though she would never describe it that way. She, she found herself following after the man in Jesus' parable who had found a great treasure and then he buried it to keep it safe. She would never talk about what this experience actually was and definitely not in any mystical terms. But if you read about kind of what happened before and after, I think that it's safe to say on my part that she had a mystical encounter with Christ on that train. She spoke, spoke much more humbly about it in her experience in the train, and it was in this encounter that she felt what she would later call, um, the, she, she would later term the call within the call to serve the poorest of the poor. She began to talk to her um, mentor and priest that she worked under in Calcutta and began to share this vision, and he bought into the vision. He believed that it was God's call for her life. He was a young priest, and he began to write to his higher-ups to ask them for permission to reordain her towards this new mission. But the bishop over the area didn't agree and wouldn't give her her new ordination to go and serve the poorest of the poor. But in 1948, after much controversy and resistance from the hierarchy, she finally received approval to begin work with the poor of Calcutta for one year. It was then that she abandoned the habit that we um, see her in in that last picture, and she began to wear a white sari hemmed with a blue stripe that most of us are really familiar seeing her in. Her early years were a struggle as she had nothing. Literally, she wrote, would write about the doubts that she had, that she didn't know if she was going to have a meal coming to her. She didn't know how she was going to have the resources to care for the poor that she was serving among. She had no idea why God had called her. She began to doubt whether she was called. But a group of young women joined her, and she, her, little, her mission to the street people of Calcutta began to grow. And in 1950, she finally received approval from the Vatican to form a new congregation, which was a part of her vision on the train, called the Missionaries of Charity. And this, and this congregation was for nuns and other lay people who felt the same call to serve the poor Calcutta. This congregation was distinctly different than other charitable orders in Calcutta because it emphasized a going out to the poor rather than the bringing in. You see, everybody else who is in Calcutta ministering to the poor would go to the streets, grab the poor, or people would bring the poor to their doors. They would bring them into hospitals or other things that the, the Catholic Church had built, and they would minister to them there. But the people of this ministry would commit themselves to a life that would be spending their time living among the poor and providing them care and comfort in their suffering right where they lived. Mother Teresa was then on the path to become the humanitarian and holy figure we all know her to be from the second half of the 20th century. She would go on to bring huge awareness to the plight of the poor of Calcutta and by extension the rest of India and from the damage the caste system that was doing to the poorest of the poor there. But her ministry brought awareness to poverty all over the globe and inspired literally, I think, tens of thousands of other efforts to minister to those in the worst of conditions. Teresa would go on to open up by herself in her ministry hospices, 
children's homes, and leper houses, the people that she worked with the most, AIDS patients, orphans, and lepers throughout all of India. Her movement grew so large that it started to spread to other countries around the globe. Houses opened up in Venezuela, uh, Italy, Tanzania, Austria, the United States, and dozens of homes in Asia and Africa. Today, the congregation that she founded, the Missionaries of Charity, has more than 5,500 members and operates over 600 missions in over 100 countries. Talk about an impact, huh? Despite not wanting much attention or desiring to gain praise, Mother Teresa became a figurehead of what it means to give everything up and serve the least of these. She would gain much recognition, including winning a Nobel Peace Prize, winning the United States Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the Ramon Magsaysay Award for Peace and International Understanding. Her life was not without controversy, though. Being a devout Catholic, she upheld the doctrines of the church, including those that were criticized as regressive among the most secular and progressive of the 20th century. Some of these included views on contraception, abortion, divorce, the role of women in the household, and her passion to evangelize those who she was serving. She is quoted by an atheist writer, some of you may have heard of him, Christopher Hitchens, as glorifying suffering and poverty to a point that he believed that she did not truly care about the poor at all, but she wanted them to continue to suffer so that they may share in Christ's suffering. So he saw her as this like sick masochist in some way. I would contend that these are immature and misunderstandings of her true beliefs and intentions, but for many others, she was villainized and hated for her work. Other critics cite the amount of money and donations that came for her mission work, but which there is no transparency from the Vatican as to how that money was spent, so nobody knows how much of it went to help the poor. They criticize Mother Teresa for this, but you guys know the Catholic Church. There's not much Mother Teresa herself had in control over that. And considering the huge breadth of ministry her work did around the globe, it definitely was not a cheap endeavor to accomplish. Another side of Mother Teresa that is not commonly spoke about, one that I was struck by personally the most as I read about her, was her own spiritual struggles. For much of her later life, Mother Teresa quietly suffered from a spiritual dryness framed and phrased by others that came before her as the dark night of the soul. At some point, she did not feel close to God, and she did not feel like she heard from him anymore. She would write to mentors and close friends, and she asked for their prayer to rekindle the passionate relationship that she once had with the Lord. She would only experience small bouts of passionate intimacy with God for the last 50 years of her life, but despite this extended period of dryness, she continued in her daily seeking of God and her obedient work and what she believed was his calling on her life and her radical, radical love of Jesus in all she did. She died on September 5th in 1997, and many of you probably remember all of the things that were on the news in those times. As we think about Mother Teresa and we reflect on her life more, if you read any more on her, I hope that she and her struggles and her life and what she went through inspires that you, that you can make a difference too. That you can be an a instrument of God in this world for good for many centuries to come. Maybe not on the level of Mother Teresa, but in a significant way. 
Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And I think that Paul would have had an affinity with Mother Teresa. I think he would have liked her a lot. He says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it out of a consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean, the other's conscience, not your own. For why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything in the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The word of the Lord. Did you guys catch the audacity of Paul's statement at the end of our passage this morning? Did you catch it? Did you hear what I think is a ridiculous thing to say? He said, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. This statement in my life has always been a mystery because I cannot imagine any time now in the past or in the future where I ever will feel comfortable saying, Follow me and imitate me, because in doing so, you'll be so Christ-like. In fact, most of you know I stand up here Sunday after Sunday and tell you to do things I don't do. And I tell you that I don't do them, and I tell you how horrible I am, and don't follow my example. (laughs) I can't imagine having the gall and the confidence of my faith and closeness in Christ to say, be imitator of me as I imitate Christ. And yet there are some people in the world who can do that. And as I think about people who could say that phrase, I think of Mother Teresa and all the stories that I grew up hearing about her. Now, I happen to know that no one in this room was born prior to 1910. In fact, most of us were born far after 1910. And so for most of us, we grew up hearing about this strange compassionate, humble, and Christ-like woman serving the poor in India named Mother Teresa. And so we all have heard these stories, and many of these stories have been validated and, and recorded through witnesses and people who lived alongside her and served alongside her and saw how she acted in this world. And it was an amazing thing. I want to share one story in particular that struck me from the mouth of a speaker I heard when I was in my early 20s, Shane Claiborne. Shane is the leader of a movement in the United States called the New Monasticism, uh, where they agree to live in a life of poverty and kind of communal house together and to 
serve the poor and do whatever they can with the poor. He'd live a simple life. And he went and he spent time with Mother Teresa. And after one of their meals, at one point, he looked down and he saw her feet. And he saw how mangled and disformed they were. And he kind of got curious about it. And so he asked the other sisters around why in the world Mother Teresa's feet were so disgusting. And the other sister said, well, you see, everything that we have here in our mission is gained from donations from the outside. And every once in a while, we get a shipment of shoes that we then disperse to all those who are in need in the community around us. And then us as the sisters uh, take, take our lot last. But Mother Teresa would always go through the shoes first so that she could find the worst shoes in the entire bunch and take those so that no one else would be left with them. So after a lifetime of wearing ill-fitting, falling-apart shoes, her feet were a witness to her love of others over herself. And Shane Claiborne tells this story to, to be a conviction to us about how we're going to live our lives for others. Another story, as I've read about her in the last couple of weeks, that really stuck out to me, especially in light of some of the accusations that I read and saw from those outside of her ministry, from atheists who want to prove how evil Christians are and how her motives weren't pure, and who talked about how she probably just pilfered people for all their money. This is a great story. The story of when she spoke one time in the United States to a pro-life rally, and she spoke with such clear compassion and, and vision and with such strength and energy that one of the wealthy members of the congregation that was listening came up to her afterwards, and he wanted to do something to help her mission. And so he said, I have this house, this very expensive house, and I want to donate it to you so that you can use it. And she responded to him and simply asked, well, where is this house? And he began to describe where the house was. And she said, well, let me ask you this. Around the house, are there any poor who can be served by this house? And the man began to describe the neighborhood it was in. And she got the picture that this was a very well-to-do neighborhood. And there was no poor to be seen in sight. And so she kindly thanked him for the offer and then turned him down. Now, being a wealthy and powerful American man, he doesn't like being turned down. So he kind of pursued her more and said, no, you can use this at some point in the future. Maybe you could sell it and use the money. I don't know what it is, but you can use this. Please take this house from me. And she, her answer to him was this. I don't accept things that I cannot use right now. Because the future is God's. And if he has something for me in the future, then he'll provide what I need then. For me to accept something that I don't need now is to hang a burden around my neck that will only drag me down or distract me from the mission that God has called me to. What an incredible statement. Convicted me when I heard that. It's easy, I think, for us as Christians to look at the life of Paul, to look at the life of Mother Teresa, and to think that that is something other, that is something we can't attain, that is something, like I described at the beginning, impossible to describe of myself one day. And yet, I don't think that's the story that Jesus wants for us. 
I think Jesus sees you just as valuable as Paul or as Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or any of the other people that we've talked about in these series of biographical sermons. I think Jesus has a plan for your life and has gifted you uniquely and specially to make an impact in this world that no one else can make. And if you don't believe that, you only hinder his mission by not obeying it in your life. God has called you to be a part of this strange community of reconciling people in this world to make a difference in his name. Mother Teresa said this, to be a true Christian means the true acceptance of Christ and the becoming of another Christ, one to another, to love as we are loved and as Christ has loved us from the cross. We have to love each other and give to others. Friends, you don't need to sell all your possessions and go to Calcutta and do the ministry that Mother Teresa did in order to accomplish that. I don't think you need to change anything in your life at all. I think the unique thing about Mother Teresa and the unique thing about Paul is that they had a singular devotion in their life. And that devotion was in seeking fellowship with their Lord and Savior Jesus above all else. Everything else came in subjugation to that relationship. And you can do that right now right here and for the rest of your life if you want to make that your priority. Now, hear me right when I say this. I did say you don't have to change anything. I didn't mean that nothing would change. Don't start to seek Christ willy-nilly. Because if you make Christ number one in your life, he has an idea of how your life is to be lived. And he might call you to make changes to follow after him. He might call you to something that you're uncomfortable in. He might call you to something that you don't feel gifted enough to do, like Moses. He might make you to serve the poor, like Mother Teresa in Calcutta. I don't know. But the importance is that you would desire and seek after Jesus more than anything else. Mother Teresa said this, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole soul, and with thy whole mind. This is the commandment of the great God. And he cannot command the impossible. Love is a fruit in season at all times and within reach of every hand Anyone may gather it, and no limit is set. Everyone can reach this love through meditation, spirit of prayer, and sacrifice by an intense inner life. Did you catch the secret? Did you catch the secret she said there? She claims that seeking Christ in your daily walk, in the silence, in your relationship, is the secret to unlocking that amazing, limitless power of love. 
You heard me talk about Mother Teresa's dry spells, but the amazing thing about it is that despite the fact that she never felt like she had this passionate revival happen in her life in the last 50 years of her life, she regularly retreated away from others to spend time in devotion and in prayer to God to seek an encounter with him despite the fact that years had gone by since she had felt like she had had a deep and moving and emotional encounter with him. She continued every single day showing that nothing would deter her from seeking her Lord. So I'm going to leave you with these words from Mother Teresa. If we need to find God and he, he cannot be found or we need to find God, and he cannot be found in the noise and restlessness. God is the friend of the silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence. See the stars, the moon, the sun, and how they move in silence. Is not our mission to give God to the poor in the slums? Not a dead God, but a living God, a loving God. The more we receive in silent prayer, the more we can give in our active life. We need silence to be able to touch souls. The essential thing is not what we say, but what God says to us and through us. All our words will be useless unless they come from within. Words that do not give the light of Christ increase the darkness. Friends, one of the other criticisms of Mother Teresa was that she glorified poverty. And I, after reading so much of her own writing and reading about her life, this is what she felt about poverty. She felt it was a horrible thing that anybody would go through, but she also recognized that it was often the fertile ground in which a deep root of faith was planted by God. And so it was not her goal to alleviate or eliminate poverty. And she was vocal about that, which is where her critics get it. Instead, her goal was to connect people to the abundant root of love in the vine Jesus Christ. So that they might have that love flow through them too. And then they might not need worldly possessions because all they want and all they seek, they would have in him. If we want to have an impact in any way, it will depend on you being rooted into that same vine. It will depend on you deciding to follow Jesus making quiet time to listen to him, to hear his voice, to surrender to his will, and to obey him in all you do.